All right. Well, good morning, Rockbridge. It's good to see you at all of our campuses across North Georgia in the Tennessee Valley, Dalton, Chatsworth, Calhoun, Ringgold, and Hickson, Tennessee. We are glad you're here with us today. We know on this holiday weekend, there's a lot of places you could have been, but you're here with us. And so we want to welcome you to Rockbridge today. We are kicking off a brand new series this morning called The Struggle. It's real. And we're going to be taking a look at folks in scripture who had a struggle and encountering some things that we have in life that we tend to struggle with. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. If you're using your iPhone or iPad, uh, we use the Holman Christian Standard Version here. So you can click on that. If you want a Bible of your own at all of our connections areas, we have a Bible that is yours. We'll put your name on it. You can keep it. And uh, that is your Bible to keep for being our guest here with us today. Or if you just need a Bible. So in 2 Kings chapter 5, today we are going to kick off this brand new series talking about the struggle of letting go of control. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I struggle with letting go of control of a few areas in my life. And the biggest one is giving up the steering wheel, giving up the car, uh, the steering wheel of my vehicle to my wife, especially because she's a horrible driver. And um, I struggle with that. Especially when we go on trips, that's when I see it the most because I'm what you would call a marathon driver. I like to get from point A to point B as quick as possible, you know, pulling over to eat, drink, go to the restroom, and let's, let's get on, get some gas every once in a while. That's important. But one of the things that I've learned in being a marathon driver is that it's easier to travel at night because my kids have the blants, uh, the blants, the bladders of ants. That was that word combined there. Man, it's going to be a long morning. All right. Uh, the other thing I've noticed is that uh, when they sleep at night, we don't have to watch Trolls or Frozen for the 60th time, you know, on the trip. They don't fight as much. But when you're driving at night, you got to pace yourself because there's times where you'll want to continue driving when you should probably pull over and sleep. And Kim does what I call the JC shuffle. She knows when I'm getting really tired. She said, I'll go like that. And it'll wake her up no matter where we're at in the trip. She'll be sound asleep. I mean, she'll be over there snoring and I'll go like that. And she'll be like, babe, you want me to drive for you? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm good. Go back to sleep, right? And then I'll stick my iPod in, you know, and I'll be listening to my iTunes. I'm just jamming, going to town, and I'll start singing a little louder. And she's like, hey, babe, you're really loud. You want me to drive? I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm good. Go back to sleep. Then when I push the envelope just a little too much, and I should have probably pulled over and slept because I'm, like, falling asleep, I'll roll down the window and stick my head out. You know, I'm, like, aerodynamic. But cold air hit me in the face. Her suggestion goes to more of a command. Pull over. Let me drive. I'm like, okay, woman. And I'll pull over and we'll get off on the exit ramp, you know, in the middle of the night out in some remote town. And we'll do this Chinese fire drill and I'll get in the passenger seat and lower the seat back and open the air vents. I don't know how she rides without air vents open. And I'll sit back and I'm ready to go. Normally, it's happened that I will fall asleep before we're on the other side of the bridge on the highway. But there was just something about letting go of the struggle of control. I couldn't let go of the steering wheel. So we were watching the other night. I was thinking about that as I was preparing this message and watching the other night. We put our boys to bed and um, before I put them to bed, we always like to sit down and watch a TV show. America's Funniest Home Videos or National Geographic. I mean, nothing says goodnight like an animal getting eaten alive, right? So we got to put the boys to bed. And uh, it's, it's an old National Geographic. And uh, there's these guys out in the desert, and they're hunting, and they're looking for water, and they can't find it. And 
So one of the ways they find water is they put this box that has a hole in it, and they stick a banana inside of the hole, and they anchor the box down. Well, no doubt a baboon will come running out from the trees, and it will stick his hand inside of the box. There's nothing inside of the box but the banana. The baboon cannot get his hand outside of the box with the banana in his hand because the hole is just the right size for his hand to go in it. The hunters will sit there and they will let that baboon get really thirsty. These guys let that baboon sit in there for 24 hours and then they went over and released it. Baboon ran and found water and so they found water. I thought that's pretty ingenious. But as I'm sitting there and I'm watching the show, I was like, man, I'm like the baboon. I can't let go of control when it comes to the steering wheel because A, she's a horrible driver and B, I just want to get there, right? And I think as I was watching this that there's a lot of things that I tend to hold on to that I need to just let go of control of. In your mind right now, you're probably thinking of some areas that you struggle with letting go of control. In our story this morning, we're going to take a look at a man who had a real struggle of letting go of control. This happened about 850 years before Christ uh, to a non-Israelite man who was part of the Aram army. Uh, He was mighty in the Aram army, but he had a skin condition also known as leprosy. In 2 Kings chapter 5, that's where we're going to look this morning, 2 Kings chapter 5, this is probably one of my favorite stories in all of the Old Testament. I love this story. It says this, verse 1. Naaman, who was a commander for the army of the king of Amram, was a great man in his master's sight. He was highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory over to Syria, that's over Israel. The man was a brave warrior, but he had a skin disease. When I read this, I, I was just going through, and you get to this word, but, right here. And I got to thinking, okay, but he had a skin disease. That carries a lot of weight there. The man had leprosy. Leprosy would start as a little rash, a little circle on your skin. But leprosy over time would kill nerve endings. Wounds would open up. You would have gaping wounds. You would have boils show up. Your face would become grotesque. You would literally lose limbs. It would make you lose feeling. Naaman was heading towards looking like the walking dead. He is living with leprosy. So when it says he's mighty, he's got all this stuff going for him, but he was a leper. He had a massive skin disease. Reading on, it says that Aram had gone on raids and brought back a girl from Israel, a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would go to the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went, told his master, that's the king, what the girl had said, and that he needed to go to the land of Israel. Therefore, the king of Aram said, go, I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. You want to talk about the ultimate reference letter? Naaman just got it from the one king to another king. Naaman's thinking, okay, I'm in. It's a who's who. People know me. I know them. I'm going to get in, right? Look what he takes with him. He took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. That's an enormous amount of money. What I don't understand is the clothing. Hey, here's $500,000 and some shirts, right? What you got to understand about these shirts is that they are handmade from the finest material. 
Somebody is about to get 10 Jay-Z type shirts dripping with bling and swag. They are going to look good. Naaman goes on. In verse 6, he brought it, the letter to the king of Israel, and it read, When this letter comes to you, note that I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. Verse 7, the king of Israel is having an emotional breakdown. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, I would say that's an emotional breakdown, Am I God? Killing and giving life to this man. Expect to cure a man of his skin disease. Think it over and you will see that he's only trying to pick a fight with me. You got to realize Syria and Israel had been in war. God had given victory over Israel to Syria. And so now they are in an internal struggle. And the king is thinking, this man is just coming to see me. Because if he's not cured, it's an opportunity for them to attack us. So he's tearing his clothes. He's having a very bad day. Then the prophet, Elisha, verse 8, who's the man of God, heard that the king tore his clothes, sent a message to him. Hey, calm down, bro. Why have you torn your clothing? Have him come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. If you write in your Bible or underline or highlight on your Bible app, highlight that verse. That's an important one. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. You see, Elisha perceived a bigger thing than just the struggle that Naaman was dealing with. Elisha realized that God was going to use Naaman's struggle for his ultimate good, God's good. So Naaman came with horses, chariots, stood at the door of Elisha's house. Think about this picture. He's coming with a ton of money, 10 shirts, with horses with chariots in front of Elisha's house. This couldn't be a very big house, but the people of Israel weren't thinking, oh my, I wonder who this is. This is some celebrity or somebody very important with all of these horses and chariots standing at the house. No, they would have been scared to death. They'd have been like, oh, it's Naaman. Hide your kids, hide your wife, hide your husbands. They're snatching our people up, right? They're scared to death in this moment. But look what happens in verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger. <laughs> Elisha sends out his assistant. He says, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. Naaman pulls up in front of his house with horses, chariots, a bunch of money, 10 shirts. <laughs> and he says, hey, I want to see Elisha. And he doesn't even get to see the man he came to see yet. He gets to see a messenger an assistant. I read that this week and I got to thinking, man, this is a crazy sight. This would be like tomorrow morning, Vladimir Putin pulls up in front of the Ringgold campus. I'm sitting at my desk. He's coming with tanks and fighter jets and all the power of Russia. And he pulls up and Pam, my administrative assistant, walks out, says, I'm sorry, Mr. Putin. Um, JC's really busy today. So go up there and wash and you'll be good. Okay. Bye-bye. Gotta go. Right. That's crazy. It wouldn't happen. That's, that's just nuts. That's what happened in this story. Naaman's like a mighty warrior from an opposing country, and he gets an assistant. Hey, go up and wash in a river, and you'll be all right. It's craziness. This is crazy talk. I love it. Okay, where are we at? Verse 11, but Naaman gets angry and left. 
I was telling myself, he will surely come out, stand and call on the name of Yahweh his God. He'll wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. Naaman had this preconceived notion in his brain of what this situation was going to look like. Anybody else with the struggle of power, of control, of letting go of control? You ever get stuck where Naaman is? You think in your brain how things are going to work out, and when they don't, you kind of get frustrated. Don't nudge your husband in this moment. Here's what happens. Naaman thought, man, I thought this was going to be like I would wear a white robe, you know, come out, walk on hot coals. Elisha would come out. We had all seen Kumbaya. He would call fire down from heaven. It would land on my skin, and I'd be healed, and everybody would be like, oh, he's healed. That's not how it turned out. He told him to go bathe in a river, the Jordan River. He says, don't I even get to go to the rivers of Damascus? Aren't they better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He tells him to go to the Jordan. This is what the Jordan River looks like. Nasty, little, dirty, muddy river. Kind of looks like Chickamauga Creek. He just says, hey, go on down there to that little creek. It's another 15 miles up. Dip seven times in that, and you'll be good to go. Then he starts protesting. He names two rivers in Syria, the mighty rivers. Aren't these better than this nasty little creek? <laughs> what we find here in verse 12, Naaman's ticked. He says, I'm going to turn and I'm going to leave in a rage. The Hebrew word for that is literally heat. Naaman's kind of like the meatloaf of the Old Testament. I'd do anything for a healing, but I won't do that, right? I ain't getting in that river. You can tell me anything you want me to do, but I ain't getting in that. Then we hear a voice of reason. In verse 13, Naaman's servant approaches and says, If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he tells you, wash and be clean? She kind of brings in a reality check. Hey, Naaman, what do you have to lose except your pride? If the prophet would have told you, hey, go to the heights of Mount Everest and pick a berry off a bush and you'll be clean, you would have done it. Why? Because it would have made you look powerful. You would have had to defeat something. If he said, go pick the toenails off a dragon and you'll be good to go, you would have done it because it would have made you look powerful. All he told you to do is go to a little dirty river, 15 miles up, dip down seven times, and you'll be clean. It's, it's below you. Your struggle of control won't let you do it because of your pride. What do you have to lose? You see what I find here that's very interesting is that the cleansing is not a result of the water. The cleansing is as a result of his heart. Naaman had to let go of pride in order to be healed. Now nobody with any medical degree or any kind of intelligence knows that you don't use exposed wounds, you don't expose open wounds to dirty water. But if you're sick enough, and it is killing you anyway, you get in the river. Naaman realized, hey, what do I have to lose here? I'm just going to let go of control of this situation because everything I've tried up to this point has failed. Let's get in the river. Look at verse 14. We see Naaman letting go of control. So Naaman went down, dipped himself into the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. And his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. 
Man, I read that this week, and I got to thinking, I wonder how long Naaman stood in that dirty water. The same water that just a few moments before he was cursing. I wonder how long he stood there. After that seventh time coming up and the spot was gone. His leprosy was removed completely. You ever had God do something for you that you didn't know how to respond? You just kind of stood there in silence. Kim and I were talking about this this week and we had an encounter pretty similar to this. Is When Caden was born, our oldest son, uh, he's seven, eight, I don't know how old he is, he's under nine. Um, when Caden was born... We went to the hospital, and uh, it was, he was born right in the middle of one of the hardest weeks of our life to date. And uh, we went to the hospital that morning, and Kim's blood pressure was really high, and the doctor said, hey, you need to go have this baby now. You're not healthy. Let's, let's just let's have the baby. And so we get down to the hospital. He was three weeks early, eight pounds, one ounces, three weeks early, big old honking boy. And... Um, she had the baby, and as, as he's delivered, we're going to cut the umbilical cord. We hear the doctor say, that's a little miracle baby right there. I look at Kim, and I was like, what? We didn't know anything was wrong with him. I mean, ultrasound, ultrasounds showed nothing. I mean, we didn't know there was anything wrong. She said, look here, Mom and Dad, and showed us the umbilical cord, and there was a true knot in his umbilical cord that was so tight. She said if he would have waited three more weeks to full term that he would have been a stillborn. We just stood there, and I didn't know what to say. I mean, tears just welled up in my eyes. I looked at Kim, and she was just like, that's a God thing. That's all she could say. It's a God thing. You ever had God do something so incredible that it just blows your mind? You don't know what to do. You just stand there and worship in silence. I kind of feel like that's what Naaman did in this moment. He dips and comes up with, the, with skin that was completely clean. Can I say to you this morning, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you've been waiting on God to do. Can I tell you not to give up hope? Because he is an on-time God. He may not come when you want him to, but he said he would be there right on time. He's got it under control. Trust him. Naaman, in this moment, had to let go of the struggle of control in order to see God move in his life. Then we see in verse 15, the best part of the story. Naaman. And his whole company, horses, chariots, money, clothing, 10 changes of clothes, went back to the man of God, Elisha, stood before him and declared. Now remember, he has never seen Elisha. Up to this point, he has never seen Elisha. He's only talked to Elisha's servant. (laughs) You would think that if you were to talk to somebody who just saved your life, somebody who just rescued you from an incurable disease, you would thank him for the leprosy being healed. You would thank him for a lot of that. But look what, look what Naaman says to Elisha. I know there is no God in the whole world except in Israel. You remember what Elisha said when the king was having a very emotional breakdown? When he was ripping his clothes, Elisha said, hey, why are you stressing? Calm down, bro. God's got a plan for this. It's for Naaman to see that there's a prophet in Israel. What does Naaman do when he finds his healing? He doesn't even talk about the leprosy. Rather, he talks about the God in Israel. Remember, Elisha said that God gave him this struggle so that he could know there is a God. Naaman went searching for a cure for leprosy, 
But he found something so much better. He found a cure for his other disease, which was sin. You see, the story is not that every leper that goes to the dirty Jordan River and dips is healed. We can read on in the book of Luke that he was one of many that weren't healed. The story is put in Scripture. And the struggle is put in here so that we can know how to find God better yet, how God finds us. What we see in verse 15, 16, 17, and 18 is Naaman who had just encountered God. And he's trying to give a gift, if you will, to Elisha. Elisha, uh, Naaman says, accept the gift. But Elisha says, as the Lord lives, I stand before him and I will not accept it. Naaman urged him to accept, but he refused. You ever met somebody that just gave their life to Jesus? Man, they are fired up. They don't care who knows it. They don't care what, they don't care what anybody thinks about them. They're going to share Jesus with whoever it is. That's what happened to Naaman. He just got life restored to him, and he's like, "Whoa! I'm going all out for this man. I'm going all out wide open. We read in verse 17, 18, and 19 that, Elijah, uh, that Naaman tries to uh, worship God in his way. His obedience is imperfect. Uh, what he does is he wants to take some dirt back. And scholars have said that he wants to place that dirt down when he's making sacrifices, when he goes into the temple to worship. And, and I read this verse, and I encourage you to read 18, 19, and 20. And you'll see that his, his obedience is imperfect, but it's a start. When you give your life to Jesus, you don't get everything, boom, in an instant. That's why we have discipleship. That's why we are to grow in our relationship with Jesus. It's not like get saved and your relationship with your wife is instantly restored to better than it's ever been. It's a start. Your gangster rap doesn't turn into harp music, right? You don't go from twerking to interpretive dancing overnight, right? There's a process that you are now on. It's called discipleship, becoming more like Jesus. That's why the mentality that we have, especially here in the South, is pray a prayer, give your life to Jesus, and that's all there is. It's kind of like we live with this get out of hell free card. Hey, I, I prayed a prayer. I gave my life to Jesus. I can do whatever I want now. I ain't going to hell. I got my fire insurance, right? It's crazy talk. That's religion, my friend. Religion is say do something and get something in return. Where salvation is allowing what has already been done to rescue you, to set you free, to start you down a path with him. What we find about this is that the gospel is free and that Naaman's response is out of a heart of what God has done in his life. So why did Naaman come to find God? When he came to find God, he had it all. He was an insider, the ultimate insider. He was a general. He was a, a movie star in that day. He was, he was the, a big-time celebrity. They didn't have movies then. He was a celebrity who ultimately became the ultimate outsider because of a disease. But his struggle is what led him to salvation. What I love about this story is that he had a death sentence. And when he encountered Jesus, his life was changed. You feel like this morning you maybe have a death sentence? 
There's something that you can't let go of the struggle and it feels like a death sentence on your life that can't be overcome. Your marriage, that child, your job, a health issue, guilt, fear that leaves you so paralyzed you don't know how to function day to day. What we have to learn and understand about the struggle that we deal with, just like Naaman, is that our struggle is with sin. Sin deadens. Sin makes us lose feeling. Sin takes us where we don't want to go. Sin leaves us where we don't want to stay. Sin will cost us so much more than we ever want to pay. We have a disease just like Naaman, and that disease is sin. Leprosy and sin are very much the same. But there is a cure. There is a remedy for every sin sick soul. That is Jesus. So how do we find freedom from the struggle of sin, the struggle of leprosy, the struggle of control over our lives? The first thing we have to do is search for humility. That's what Naaman had to do. He had to search for humility. Do you realize that Naaman kept trying to go to kings? Naaman kept trying to go to the high ups, but God used for what he would consider insignificant people to bring him to salvation. The Hebrew girl, the lowest of low, a girl, a Hebrew, a servant, a slave, lowest of low. God used her to tell him about the second one in the story, the prophet of a despised people group. Then it was Elisha's assistant that helped Naaman find salvation. And ultimately, it was Naaman's servant. It was Naaman's servant that told him to stop and gave Naaman the reality check. You see, the message that we can pull from this story is that God doesn't save through the strength of men. Money, strength, and power are worthless to God. The other thing that we can see is that God saves by grace through faith. It is a free gift. It's not do a bunch of good stuff in order to earn salvation. That's called religion. It's not, hey, I'll do good things for God so he'll give good things to me. You ever heard somebody say this, and I know you have, something good happens to somebody, and they'll be like, man, their prayer life must be good, or they must have tithed Sunday, or they're living right. I hit a triple the other day and ran a double. Some of y'all get that at lunch. And um, hit a triple, ran a double. So I'm standing on second base, and uh, the guy was, walks up, and he pats my back, and he said, man, you must be living right, preacher man. Why? Because I hit a triple and ran a double. It's like good things happen to good people. It's like your theology's so bad, but whatever. <laughs> Religion says do, 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 and I'll get from God. Where a relationship says trust, obey, turn in faith, believing in God. So how do we find freedom? It's through humility. Naaman found humility. Not in kings, but in four people. Not in the fact that he could pay for his healing. The ultimate thing we have to do next is we have to give up small steps of obedience. What we find is that simple acts of obedience come in helping us let go of control. Man, I love that the servant girl, the servant girl, an unnamed person in Scripture other than a servant girl, She was a young girl. She would have been 12 to 14 years old. She was a a, a victim of human trafficking. This young girl 
could have held a grudge against Naaman. She could have said, hey, you old goon, I'm glad you got leprosy. It serves you right for what you've done to me and my family. But she doesn't do that. Remember in verse 2, she said, go to the prophet in Israel. He'll tell you where to be healed. Her struggle was not because of something she had done. She was struggling for a different purpose. Her struggle ultimately became Naaman's salvation. And what Naaman had to do in order to let go of control was to trust and to take small steps of obedience. Small steps of obedience may not be the easiest thing to do, but all we have to do is trust God. He says that if we will come to him, that we will be clean just like Naaman he came up with skin like a baby. If we trust in him, he said, if any man be in me, I will create in him a new creation. Old things will be passed away and all things will become like new. We have to trust in God. That's how we take a step of obedience. Maybe today for some of you at all five of our campuses, it's taken the first step. That's trusting Jesus with your whole heart giving him the steering wheel of your life. Here at Rockbridge, we use the word base, B-A-S-E, to help us illustrate how we can give our life to Jesus. The first word is believe. We have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who lived a perfect life, who died for our sins, who rose again from the dead. And when we believe, then we accept that Jesus died in our place and the only acceptable payment for our sins, our failures, our mistakes, our struggles, our shortcomings is through him because he loves us. And then you know what we do? We switch. We switch and we let Jesus have the steering wheel of our life. We let go of the struggle of control and decide that from this day forward, we're going to follow King Jesus. And then lastly, we express it our new life in Christ, by being baptized, by joining others in our local church and learning and obeying the teachings of Jesus through community and through accountability. It's the gospel that gives us life. The gospel is that Jesus, though we rejected and rebelled against him, could not look over that rejection and that rebellion. But a God who is love and mercy would not leave us helpless and hopeless and that's why he sent Jesus to step into history, to live a perfect life, die a criminal's death, be buried, but to rise again so that you and I could have a relationship with him. It's as easy as giving him the steering wheel of our life. But maybe you're like Naaman and you think, well, that's too easy. Maybe there's penance that I have to pay or things that I need to do. I need to read the Old Testament first and then I'll be accepted. Maybe I need to go to church a lot and look the part and act the part. That's religion. It's like a treadmill that will leave you empty. A relationship is believing and accepting and switching places and then expressing it. You can give your life to Jesus today. By giving him the steering wheel of your life and saying, God, I choose you. Just like my wife, when driving down the road, says, hey, why don't you give me the steering wheel and you take a rest? If I continue to sit in that, pass, in that driver's seat, we're heading towards a crash. We're heading towards a wreck because I'm going to fall asleep. And there's a lot of people depending on me in that moment. How many of you today have a struggle with letting go of control? 
Just like me, you can't let go of the steering wheel of life, even though you're heading for something that's going to be your demise. Can I tell you today that the message and the application of this is one that we can let go of control and we can trust God because one is that God is constantly at work to lead people to himself no matter how dark your condition may be. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. God is at work behind the scenes doing things you may be completely unaware of, but one day you will benefit from. You've got to trust his plan. Can you let go of the steering wheel today and trust that he is at work, even in the darkness of your condition? The second thing we see from this story is that God uses committed believers, no matter how ordinary or insignificant he or she may be. Don't give up, my friend. You may not have the masses that listen to you when you talk, but you're making a difference because you are exactly who God has created you to be for those people that you're speaking life into. God used four ordinary, lower-than-him kind of people in Naaman's life to bring him to salvation. Don't quit. Don't give up. There are too many people depending on you for you to throw in the towel and say, I'm insignificant. I don't matter. Third thing we find from this story is that the grace of God cannot be bought with silver, with gold, power, or position. We have to come to God in faith. And the two greatest hindrances from experiencing God's blessing is our pride and our opinion. Let me ask you this morning, have you picked up something that you can't let go of? Do you struggle with the power of control this morning? I was reading a story when we lived in Salt Lake City, uh, over in the Wasatch Mountains, which is to the left, uh, the west side of the Salt Lake Valley. Everybody knows at a certain time of the year, there's eagles that will fly in those mountains. And uh, there's a story of a young boy and his dad that wanted to see the eagles, so he put on the binoculars, he got the camera, and he started up on the mountain. And as they're heading up, he thought he saw the eagle. No, it's just a hawk. And then they looked over in the distance, and there's some birds flying around. That's just buzzards. They're going to eat something that's dead. And then he spotted it. He spotted the mighty eagle soaring at heights that no other bird can soar. The eagle with its wingspan 8 to 10 feet wide climbs to heights that no other bird can climb to. You see, it was created to soar. When a storm hits, the eagle will ride the wind to even higher places above the storm. That's what it's created for. He said as the young boy watched the eagle climbing higher and higher, in an instant with ferocious power and authority, the eagle darted toward the earth like a missile, swooping down and picking up something in its mighty claws and heading straight towards the sun, climbing higher and higher. And in an instant, it was as if the gunshot went off. The eagle started falling towards the earth. Not with the same ferocious power and authority, but tumbling head over tail towards the earth in a disgraceful fall. And as the bird hit the ground below, the young boy took off running, flipped the bird over. And there, clasped in the claws of that eagle, was a weasel. He had picked up a weasel, and that weasel had embedded into the chest of that eagle and gotten to the eagle's heart. Ultimately, what he picked up killed that eagle. Can I ask you this morning, have you picked up something that is killing you? 
Have you picked up something that is just like this disease that Naaman had? It is eating you from the inside out. Have you picked up something that you can't let go of? Something that is keeping you from fulfilling the purpose that God has for your life? What is that, my friend? Here's how you can find freedom this morning. Small steps of obedience will start you down a path of letting go of the struggle of control. For some of you this morning, that first step is saying yes to Jesus. It's giving Jesus the steering wheel of your life and literally letting go and allowing him to take over. For others who have already said yes to Jesus, maybe your struggle of control is that you're trying to do it on your own. You need to get connected in a small group. You need to take a next step in baptism. You need to find some accountability. These are not just friends that are going to help you continue to live in the same stuff you're living in, but will hold you accountable and take you to the next level. Whatever the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today, here's the invitation. Will you listen? Will you trust? And will you obey? If you said yes to Jesus today, you gave him the steering wheel of your life, would you let us know that? This is how you can express it. In the seat back pocket in front of you at all of our campuses, there's a next step card. If you'll fill it out, let us know that today I gave Jesus the steering wheel of my life. I said yes to him. We want to celebrate with you. We got a gift for you, a ready-to-follow bag. It's got a Bible and some literature in there. It's got some stuff that will help you take next steps. We want to celebrate with you on that. If you need prayer, if there's something going on in your life, at all of our campuses, there'll be a campus pastor down front. There'll be connections workers and elders out in the lobby. Find one of us. Let us pray with you. Whatever the Holy Spirit is talking to you today, I pray that you will listen, that you will trust, and that you will obey, and that we will not have the struggle of control over our lives, but we will learn to find the freedom in letting go. Father God, I love you this morning. God, I thank you for the freedom that we find in you when we learn to let go of the struggle of control. God, I pray today for my brother, my sister in this room who is holding on to something that is wrecking their life. They are holding on to something that they cannot let go of. It may not be something that they ask to have in life, but they don't know how to get rid of it. And God, I pray today that we will learn to find freedom from the struggle of holding on to control and letting go. Whatever that may be, a substance, a relationship, fear of the unknown. God, I pray today that you will rescue people from religion. I pray today that you will rescue people from the fear of tomorrow, that paralyzing fear because they can't let go. God, I thank you for Naaman. I thank you for his struggle. And that ultimately, through his struggle, he found salvation. And I pray that all of us in this room, at all of our campuses across North Georgia and Tennessee Valley, that we will learn to have faith, to trust what you say, to know that you're good and that you are for us and that we can trust you. God, I love you. Help us today to listen to your spirit as we take these next steps in not struggling with letting go of control. 
In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.